and welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Luce Nguyen, a college student and the co-founder of the Oberlin Policy Research Institute, an undergraduate public policy research organization based at Oberlin College. My guest today is Akshaya Kamonath, a lecturer in corporate law at the Auckland University of Technology School of Law. We will be discussing her article, Corporate Insolvency Resolution in India, a proposal to overcome the initiation problem, forthcoming in the University of Missouri, Kansas City Law Review. Welcome, Professor Kamalnath. Thank you. So first of all, let's go into uh, why did you write this paper, what got you interested in it, and uh, what's the general scope of this paper? Okay, so why I wrote this paper, I actually, I teach corporate insolvency law in Australia, but I'm from India, so I follow uh, corporate law developments in India. And when this, the paper is really about the insolvency and bankruptcy law in India, which was introduced in 2016. So I got to looking at it and I was interested in writing about it right from around 2016, but it was so fluid with so many uh, changes and developments since then uh, that I kind of put that on hold. But uh, earlier this year, I think it was a kind of cross-fertilization of ideas from Australia, India, and generally internationally that I got to writing this paper. So the paper is mainly looking at one aspect um, of the entire insolvency resolution process for companies and that is really at the pre-insolvency or the um, just before a company or other parties initiate a resolution process. So while this paper is really about the problem in India, this is kind of an issue in a lot of other countries as well. So I think um, it would be interesting. And the paper started out as a larger project, but it kind of got out of hand. So this paper only deals with the initiation problem and there's a part two that I'll be working on later. So let's go over the basics of uh, the of corporate law in India. Uh, the old law preceding the this new law, the Insolvency and Bankruptcy Code of 2016, and how it plays into uh, the structures of these laws and how it affects uh, business decisions and business law. Yeah, so uh, the interesting thing about the time before this law, the insolvency and bankruptcy law was introduced in 2016, um, is that there was really a very, uh, it was very piecemeal for anyone. So we, we had a lot of options if a company was going to restructure or become insolvent, depending on who wants to initiate a restructuring process. If it's a creditor or the company or the type of creditor you or the type of company, you had various different options and a different forum for each of these parties to go to. So it was very piecemeal and broken down. So let's think about secured creditors. So like banks um, or other secured creditors, they had a completely different forum called the debt restructuring tribunal um, if they wanted to enforce their secured debts against the company. Um, and that was treated as a, a contract law issue. They could also just go to 
civil courts. So it's really up to the uh, financial creditor to choose their option. And the company itself, uh, under the Companies Act, could try and use something called a scheme of restructuring or they could just wind up the company. Now, this tree, uh, scheme of restructuring was quite complicated because it was very process. Uh, it had cumbersome processes with the court being involved at every stage. And the courts in India are notorious for delays. So it, companies didn't really choose that option. And actually more interesting for my paper is a third uh, option for industrial companies. Uh, there was a, a legislation known as the Sikh Industrial Companies Act. Now, this is interesting because unlike all the other options, this particular legislation let uh, focused on restructuring or reviving the company. So while this looks great, actually the focus, if you look at the history of the law, was more on uh, a kind of uh, social, socialist kind of ideology of ensuring people don't lose their jobs in large companies. So while courts really want to revive or restructure companies, rather than assessing if the company is viable enough to uh, revive, they're kind of focused on saving jobs. So since they're always tending towards um, reviving the company, we tended to have a lot of problematic decisions in terms of viability. Um, so that law was also problematic because it went into uh, even when uh, so basically the court the tribunal that decided on a viability was the known as the BIFR and that could then be appealed to the high courts so at various levels when it went into appeals the um, courts tended to again re-examine issues despite the previous court already assessing viability. So what I'm trying to get at is there were huge delays under that law. So for a company to just to assess viability, it would take about three or four years. And even after you assess viability, uh, very few companies actually revived. Many companies were liquidated after it was assessed by these courts that they're actually viable enough to revive. So Basically, what happened, the fallout from that law was that it became really infamous or notorious in a way for all these delays. Um, and this model of leaving the uh, company, that the corporate debtor management, to continue to be in control, known as the debtor in possession model followed in the US. So that model itself got blamed for all the problems with Sika, whereas really the problems happened with the assessment in the courts, etc. Um, so I think that really influenced the model chosen by the new law, the Insolvency and Bankruptcy Court, uh, which decided not to go with the debtor in possession model followed in the US. Um, rather, it follows the uh, model followed in the UK, where the moment a company enters into corporate resolution process, the management loses control and control passes to um, an insolvency professional. Um, so I think the SICA had this kind of, that is the SIC Industrial Companies Act that I'm talking about, had this kind of impact on the new law. And I go on to criticize that, uh, the fallout from that later on in the paper. So in Indian law, well, in the Indian system, there is something that's 
pretty uh, basically uh, foreign to most observers, which is what a promoter is. Can you go and uh, talk about what promoters are and how they uh, influence these laws and uh, the impacts that they have on uh, business law in India? Right. So I think in most, uh, the term promoter itself is not foreign to corporate law in uh, most countries uh, because by promoter in most countries, we understand that term to mean people who prior to the company being registered, they go around uh, promoting the company. So they're known as promoters at that stage. And once the company is registered, then they just become, uh, if they're signed on as directors or shareholders, they have, um, or uh, people with key manager managerial roles, you refer to them by those terms. But in India, where most of the companies, the large companies are owned by family groups, um, we tend to continue referring to management as promoters. Uh, So when we say promoters, uh, we really mean management and directors of the company because essentially those people who went and promoted the company, members of the family group, continue to remain in control and they probably hold... uh, key managerial roles, director roles, um, and are also controlling shareholders in the company. So the point really is, it's not just a term that we use to refer to them. The impact of this kind of um, uh, situation where promoters are in control actually can be seen in the Sikh Industrial Companies Act that I discussed earlier. Um, So there it lets the debtor remain in possession of the company, that is the debtor company management, which is in India, the promoters. So when they remain in possession and they're really, uh, we don't see much difference between the majority shareholders and the controllers. So they're just promoters. So it gives them a chance to kind of conceal any issues, any problems in uh, running of the business, etc. So I think that's another uh, reason the new uh, insolvency and bankruptcy code wanted to shift the uh, control from management or promoters to uh, the insolvency professional, just because uh, there's already so much lack of transparency. So yes, that has a huge impact. And uh, so maybe that kind of uh, is the reason the debtor in possession model was kind of um, not really embraced in India. And the time that we did embrace it under the Sikh Industrial Companies Act, it didn't work so well. Um, but as I say later, there are ways to overcome this. Even if you have a debtor in possession model, you can still have an external person, the same insolvency professional, maybe just uh put him in as him or her in as a special director or special independent director to be part of the uh, management processes. So to provide transparency. Um, But yeah, we don't, that's kind of this issue of promoters has really, um, I think, influenced a lot of the way the IBC, the new law was structured. So particularly, let's dive in a little more on how the IBC is structured and how uh, bankrupt and insolvent corporations would uh, be treated and how debtors and creditors act under the system of law. So under the new insolvency and bankruptcy code, 
um basically after kind of uh, deciding not to use the debtor in possession model mainly because of the failures of the sikh industrial companies act what the um legislation does is basically allow for creditors of the company or the company itself to uh, take the company into this process known as the corporate insolvency resolution process now previously i mentioned the uh, courts were a big problem under the sikh industrial companies act you had a tribunal called the bifr and then you had appeals going to the courts and i guess i didn't mention there that the another problem was that those tribunals and courts didn't really have the expertise the business expertise to decide upon viability so all of this was kind of has been addressed in the new law so there there are a lot of uh, great things that the new law addresses uh, first of all it creates a company law tribunal known as the nclt the national company law tribunal so there are co- company law tribunals across the country and then there's an appellate uh, company law tribunal where appeals from these tribunals can go now all these tribunals are staffed with uh, former judges but also uh, what are known as technical members so members with business expertise so that's something good that the uh, new law has done now this tribunal basically has a big role to play when either the company or creditors decide to initiate the corporate insolvency resolution process they basically approach the company law tribunal known as the uh, nclt and uh, the nclt then makes uh, quickly makes decisions as to whether to accept enter the company into the insolvency resolution process or not the other thing was because under the previous system you had a lot of delays the new uh, law actually sets very clear timelines that um start, even for small processes like how long can a, a company law tribunal take to decide whether or not the insolvency process can be initiated that's 14 days so there's all these strict timelines mentioned at various stages which is a good thing um the other thing it does and i think this is kind of unique uh, to india if you compare with bankruptcy systems in other countries it dif- it kind of divides up the type of creditors so it calls uh, one category as financial creditors which would be the banks and the large financial creditors and the other category would be operational creditors which includes trade creditors and also employees so that's actually pretty interesting to give employees a right to actually take the company to the insolvency resolution process um so the the new law actually sets up um all of these uh, processes quite well the problem really is that the company itself the corporate debtor the company management or promoters don't have um enough of an incentive to actually initiate this corporate insolvency resolution process because under the new law the terms under which the uh, insolvency resolution process can be initiated is if there is a default um of a debt of a minimum amount comes to about 2000 us dollars so if there's a default then a financial creditor can directly take the company to the insol- insolvency resolution process um it then just says that the corporate debtor can also start the insolvency process if there's a default um so there isn't really 
much of an incentive beyond uh, the company wanting to restructure with the help of an insolvency professional um and with employees or trade creditors they can um, don't take the company to the nclt to start the insolvency resolution process um and we we've had a few cases where employees and trade creditors have taken companies to um start the process but i think more or less yeah it's an even split between financial creditors and uh, operational creditors um who've taken the company to start the process but i think the difference really is the problem really lies with large companies because what i discussed about uh promoter groups being in control of companies this happens a lot with large companies so it's really with these pro- uh, companies that i talk about the initiation problem where nobody is initiating the um insolvency process under the law so why does the insolvency problem happen the initiation problem yeah in these in these big um big companies so imagine a company is insolvent for a number of uh months or even years and the corporate debtor that is the promoters don't want to enter the company into um the insolvency resolution process because they don't want to lose control of the company because control then passes to an insolvency professional um so ideally the law the way it's structured basically expects the creditors to take the company to the insolvency resolution process but what we're seeing is in a lot of these big companies that's not happening and that's really curious because after this law came into was introduced the federal bank of india the reserve bank of india which is the federal bank actually uh issued a circular asking all the big banks to clear up their balance sheets because they'd accumulated a lot of what is known as non performing assets uh from these big companies basically uh, uh they hadn't paid they defaulted on a number of loans so it's really curious that these banks are not taking the company to court but uh even though you have this new law in place and you had the federal uh, bank actually asking these banks to go ahead and do this and the answer really lies in again understanding the bank structure in india a lot of these banks in india are state owned banks um so they're not really under the same uh, pressures of the private uh, banks and they really want to have their um, uh to keep status quo and hope that uh the companies would pay one day because if you take the company to the insolvency process and if the company gets liquidated then they probably take huge cuts on what they're owned so they'd rather just stay uh in status quo also these large uh promoter groups are very influential families since they've been controlling the capital of uh, the big companies for a number of years they're very well connected so you can well imagine how uh, the uh, creditors and promoter groups are actually in a, a kind of helping each other by not uh, starting initiating the insolvency process and the other thing is when the law actually allows employees and operational creditors to go ahead and initiate the process why hasn't that happened with these big companies so there's when i try to explore that there's no clear answer to that except that maybe these uh 
employee unions are in negotiations with promoters and kind of uh, hoping it would be uh, settled out of court because of our India's history of uh, the insolvency resolution not being very good. So maybe there isn't that kind of faith in the insolvency um, law, insolvency restruct, uh, in, insolvency law anymore. So at least in these big companies. Um, so I think I use the example of Jet Airways, this um, case that was really big in the media. And I think it's still uh, almost every day there's a new uh, development with this case, which nicely sets out the initiation problem. So maybe I can talk about that, the case itself. So yeah, let's go on about uh, the background of Jet Airways. You use it as an example Hmm. in your paper about... Uh, the initiation problem, this airline that uh, had some significant financial problems, but no one put them through the uh, process prescribed by the law. Yeah. So the initiation problem that I was talking about, where nobody actually initiates the insolvency law that is really structured and uh, uh, developed for this process, and it's not being used. And I use this uh, Jet Airways case because just because it's so big, there's a lot of um, news items about it because it's really hard to figure out why nobody is initiating the insolvency process because all these things are happening uh, behind uh, closed doors in negotiation processes. So with Jet Airways, basically there was news reports of um, it was clear to everyone that Jet Airways had huge financial problems. They were, in fact, looking for bidders, um, any interested parties to invest. And they actually had two very interested bidders, um, I think Tata and um, Etihad Airways. Um, and not every news article covers this, but one or two news articles talk about how the condition for uh, these companies, both Etihad and Tata, to invest in Jet Airways was that the promo- the chairman uh, of the company, Jet Airways, Naresh Goel, who is a member of the promoter group. So we just refer to him as the promoter of the company. So they wanted the promoter to step down from the chairmanship uh, in order to invest as a condition to invest. And the promoters were not happy with this condition, so they didn't accept these bids. So on the one hand, you have these, uh, neither the employees nor the banks have initiated the insolvency code. Um, On the other hand, you have some interested bidders who may help out the company, but those bids are being rejected by the promoters. And you're seeing in the news every day where employees are talking about how they haven't been paid for a number of months. And you'd really have to wonder why these employees didn't just initiate the insolvency code um, so that the insolvency process is triggered and uh, the company can be restructured. So in one of the interviews, the biggest uh, creditor of Jet Airways, the State Bank of India, which is another state-owned bank, basically says... Uh, that there, uh, the moment they initiate the insolvency process, then uh, there is really no hope of restructuring because it's a 
service industry jet airways is an airline company so maybe uh, they'll they'll stop they'll go out of business as soon as they start the insolvency process so the it just shows that there isn't much faith in the um, insolvency process on the creditors part for to as one part of the explanation but another part of the explanation is this very connected promoter uh, who seems to want to retain control and is rejecting bids um so ultimately till today they haven't really uh, actually after this paper was written um i think more a week or two weeks back uh, ultimately you have trade creditors that have gone to the uh, company law tribunal to initiate the insolvency process and there's still no determination on that but it's taken all this while and by now i think there is really no hope because there are no bidders anymore um so that that's really a the jet airways case i think nicely brings out the initiation problem that i talk about in this paper so in your paper you go over potential solutions for the initiation problem uh bringing in examples from uh, australia and the united states can you expand on that yeah so the actually australian corporate insolvency has gone is going through its own reform process at the moment so i had that in mind and when i'm looking at the indian process where um there is a really lack of incentive for promoters to file for um insolvency what really stri- uh, struck me uh, is the stark contrast with australia where the problem really that the new reforms were trying to solve was the other extreme where uh, directors of companies are filing for the insolvency process which is known as voluntary administration in australia um they're they're starting the process very early so it was a a uh, problem of directors not trying to restructure out of court and going to the formal process prematurely so more of a risk averse situation where uh, even companies that may have been restructured is being put on to put into this voluntary administration process and might just be liquidated because of uh, premature entry into the process so why this disparity and what what are the incentives at play here is what i something i examine and i see if we can possibly uh pick something up from australia to begin with uh but really the australian law the reason this kind of uh, directors uh are set up to uh, file for premature insolvency in this manner in australia is because australia has a law known as um, uh, personal liability for directors for insolvent trading now this law is very very strict basically it says that if directors know or uh, have reason to believe that the company is insolvent um, or will become insolvent when they enter into a certain debt then they would be personally liable for any debts entered into so this fear of personal liability basically uh, makes directors enter the company into insolvency in the nearest uh, even when they see a threat of insolvency so the law reform in australia tried to actually overcome this problem by coming up with something known as the safe harbor so the safe harbor tries to say that uh this uh liability for insolvent trading will not apply if directors are doing 
certain things and what are these certain things it says director should be trying to uh, find a course of action or a plan uh, for the company that will result in a better outcome than just entering the company into uh, the formal insolvency process at the time so it is pretty vague and this new reform is i mean law reform is new so we haven't seen any cases of what uh these courses of action or plan of action uh are meant to be but one of the if you look at the legislative guidance one of the things it says is if they are getting advice from a restructuring professional so then they have this safe harbor protection so this looks like an interesting uh thing you can use in india but the problem really is if you think about using something like this in the jet airways case if jet airways was operating under the australian uh, insolvency law with the safe harbor what would happen is you can think of promoters really just getting an insolvency or restructuring expert uh, on their roles and paying them and saying that yes we're negotiating we're uh, trying to devise a plan and they go on rejecting bids that require them to uh give up control of the company um so there's no real way to say that what they're doing is really harming the company so basically i reject the australian model after looking at uh how it might work in the indian context and then i look at um not really the us bankruptcy law but a very different uh law coming out of the uh, case uh, the delaware case Re- uh, revlon uh, which basically says that when a company is um, when a company has effectively been put on sale and the company is actively seeking bids then the directors are not really looking at uh, looking at anything else but they have a duty to just maximize returns for shareholders and accepting the highest bid and of course there's a lot of criticism in the uh, in of the revlon case itself in the us but the context is different in india and i'm uh, trying to apply it to the insolvency context uh, rather the pre insolvency context where promoters like in a case like jet airways promoters really want to uh, get capital but they want to retain control but if you think of what's good for the company maybe a change of control is the right thing here uh, because the companies if you have a chance the choice between accepting a bid from someone who requests a change of control versus just liquidating the company then you would for the sake of all the stakeholders in the company choose the first choice right so uh, the revlon duty or a modified revlon duty as i call it in the paper would actually be a very good idea in this context where in the jet airways context for example if you have a revlon duty in the pre insolvency stage saying that now that the promoters have been actively seeking bids then they are forced to sell to the highest bidder uh, if that rule existed they would have had to sell to etihad or tata um, and the company would still be functional at this point um, so that's what i try to put into the, uh, my proposal to make the insolvency law more efficient So can you think of any other examples on how this would play out uh in other examples besides the uh Jet Airways case how a mandatory requirement to take the highest bid if you're seeking bids would change the structure of uh the way that the insolvency and bankruptcy code is uh 
applied by current uh, companies that are on the verge of insolvency and bankruptcy? Actually, it's kind of hard to pinpoint examples of cases that have these sort of where you have this kind of detail that I have about Jet Airways simply because Jet Airways was such a high profile case. So we have in the news um, information about what bids they had, why they rejected bids. So we really don't have so much information in many cases. But what I basically uh, propose would kind of Uh, would kind of make this pre-insolvency stage a useful uh, stage in itself uh, and kind of kind of work as what actually some someone else calls as a de facto chapter 11 in uh, in context of other countries so while I don't have those sort of specific examples, in India, there's apparently a lot of cases that enter into the successful cases that have entered into settlements prior to the company being taken into the um, insolvency process. What this shows is that the creditors and promoters both don't really want to go into the formal insolvency process unless they really have to. Um, and the finance minister in India actually has some sound bites about how uh, they do recognize that a lot of companies have been settled before entering into the insolvency process, and it's a good thing. So if there is a way to kind of uh, uh, recognize that and encourage that, that is uh, something the government would be uh, looking into as well is what um, I see from news reports. So basically, along with proposing that we need to have this sort of uh, modified Revlon duty, I also go into a little more detail about where to uh, put put this proposal in. So I start off when I discussed the Sikh Industrial Companies Act earlier, I started off saying that we really needed the debtor in possession model to uh, in India so that it would work more efficiently. But since the insolvency uh, law in India hasn't taken that route, that that uh, kind of suggestion is moot right now. So what I do is I try to make a suggestion that's easily workable under the current regime. So without really changing the current insolvency law, what I say is we can tweak the director's duties provisions in the company law. And the director's duties provision in India's company law is actually very uh, interesting because most uh, director's duties provision provisions in other countries just talks about directors having duty to uh, look into the best interests of the company. Whereas in India's latest iteration of the company law, basically we have this section that tries to do something like the UK's enlightened shareholder value model. So the section kind of talks about how directors have a duty to consider the best interests of the company. And then it adds language about um, sh- uh, other stakeholders. So it says shareholders, employees, environment. Uh, But it's kind of interesting that there's no mention of creditors. While if you look at the common law cases um, in most common law jurisdictions, we say that when a company starts to get closer to insolvency, in the zone of insolvency, then directors have to consider the interests of the creditors as well. So what I propose is to kind of... uh, introduce within that uh, director's duties provision in our company's law uh, language about creditors as well 
especially in the pre-insolvency stage. So that kind of gives an opening when you're talking about pre-insolvency stage, interests of creditors, it gives an opening to the legislature to also talk about how directors would consider interests of creditors in that pre-insolvency stage. So that's where I say that we could put in language to say that if uh, what, if they engage in restructuring process, then they should, when they put the company on sale or when they're looking for bids, then they should accept the highest bid or they should just enter the company into the formal insolvency process. So this kind of sets up incentives for everybody nicely because um, when you have this sort of rule, uh, promoters who want to retain control might think that if they don't want to sell to the highest bidder because they're asking them to give up control, it may be better to actually enter into the formal insolvency process. And since the formal insolvency process, again, allows for opportunities to uh, accept bids. It's not such a bad outcome. And for creditors as well, they would kind of be more involved in the process pre-insolvency as well, because they know that they have some sort of uh, uh, more uh, weightage in terms of bargaining power in terms of talking to promoters prior to uh, in the pre-insolvency stage. And the real uh, advantage of putting in this language in the director's duties provision is that shareholders have an incentive to actually enforce this provision because at this point, the company still has a chance of being solvent. So shareholders would try and enforce this provision if they think that accepting that bid is going to revive the company and then the company stays solvent. On the other hand, if the company is anyway going to become insolvent, go into the insolvency process, shareholders don't have much incentive to get into the issue because they're the residual claimants anyway. So I think putting this into the uh, director's duties provision sets up incentives for a lot of stakeholders pretty well. So in the beginning, you said that this article was part of a larger project that you've now split into two articles. So this is your first uh, major part of it. What's the second part that you plan to publish in that paper in the future? Right. So when I started off this article, it was meant to be a general discussion of the problems in the insolvency law at various stages. So the first stage was going to be the initiation stage. Um, second stage was going to be after the insolvency professional is appointed, uh, what were the problems? Because those uh, cases wherein the company does enter into the insolvency resolution process, there's a lot of adversarial relationship between the company, the insolvency professional, and the creditors. More, uh, In fact, there are very uh, shocking instances of an insolvency professional being locked in overnight in a data room in a company, or in some cases where the insolvency professional is not denied access at all into the premises. So I thought there's a very interesting problem to look into, but the initiation problem itself was... Uh, I thought quite interesting to deal with separately. So I decided to deal with the second uh, stage later in a subsequent paper. So uh, in for concluding remarks, what would you like for uh, policymakers, for judges, and for regulatory institutions in India and beyond India to take from this paper? 
So the initiation problem, like I said, I'm talking about Indian insolvency law, but the initiation problem is kind of relevant in a number of countries which don't have the Chapter 11 system of the corporate debtor remaining in possession. So I think uh, policymakers in India are have been very open to taking suggestions from uh, business, uh, academia, etc., and uh, making changes in this law. Um, so I think some this is a workable proposal that I would like them to take into account and uh, put it uh, kind of uh, tighten the pre-insolvency system in India. And I think it could be relevant to a number of other countries following uh, similar UK-style models as well. Right. Well, thank you very much, Professor Kamalath, for coming on the podcast to talk about your very interesting new article. Thank you, Luce. I enjoyed this. national system is established. 